welcome to another episode of Chingona, a podcast about women who inspire with their heart and their hustle. My name is Leah. So for today's program, Karen and I interviewed our friend Ruby Lee Pierce. That's who's singing in the background right now. And Ruby was the first friend I made when I moved to Colorado. She's a 24-year-old Denver native. She was 23 at the time of this initial interview. And she dives into what it's like being a woman of color in the opera world and the world in general. She talks about her experience at Vassar College and gets into her Native American heritage a bit. And just to give you a description of Ruby, she's a tall, slender, curly-haired, kind-faced individual. She's a celebrator of femininity. She's an opera singer, a model, a multiracial citizen of the world, and she exudes what I like to call gravity because she just has this way of drawing people to her. Well, I was born and raised here in Denver. I've got two sisters, an older and a younger. Um, I am multiracial. My mom is black, Native American, and white. My dad is white. Um, Currently, I am studying opera with a private teacher and working full-time at a testing company, developing licensing and certification exams. I just, I, one, I find it really interesting that you're an opera singer because I don't Mm -hmm. know any. And for mm. some reason, I just imagine like all opera singers to be like really old. And so <laughs> the yeah. fact that, and I just also I feel like opera is a very uh, white it thing to do. Yes. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you got into. Yes, I've been singing my whole life, um, just all the time. My family has found it very annoying. Um, my mom says that I frequently sing without noticing, and it's true. Um, so I got into choirs and into voice lessons when I was in, uh, elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, I had a teacher in high school, um, who taught lessons out of her basement. Her name is Winnie. She's a wonderful lady. She's in her eighties and she is still kicking ass. Um, but she really gave me my foundation in terms of classical technique. And she was the one who really said, this is what your voice is for. This is what you should do. Um, And she really encouraged me. I think it meant a lot to have a person who was like, you know, unqualified, like, you're going to be great at this. Like, if you decide to do this, you're going to be probably one of the best, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And most people, I don't think, get that from their mentors or their teachers growing up. So I was really lucky to have that encouragement. Um, And ever since then, I've been singing. So I've been doing um, opera studies, more or less. (laughs) Um, I went to Vassar and took voice lessons every week, uh, and I learned a lot while I was there. I did some summer programs as well Mm -hmm. uh, for young artists, um, young opera singers, and I'm here now, just sort of making sure that my technique is really solid before going out into the world and trying to do it for realsies. Mm -hmm. So, like, what what does that mean? Like, how does one make it as an opera singer? Well, with anything in the arts, I would say that it's, there are different... A number of different ways you can do it. So um, with opera, typically you go the education route to a certain extent. I know a number of people who have their masters and then went on maybe to get their doctorate. Um, but in my observation and in the advice I've gotten, um, having a degree in opera does not guarantee that you are marketable or even have a solid technique. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I chose to focus on having a solid technique first. So I came back home and I'm studying with a private teacher and we're just really focusing on um, making sure that the sound is consistent all throughout my range, that I really am comfortable in my foch, that um, my foch, by the way, is my... <laughs> I was going to say, no, yeah, yeah. you're what now? <laughs> um, so foch is just a German term for your voice category. Um, so that's that includes all of the roles in the opera repertoire that you would be able to sing, theoretically. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect, of course. Any kind of system of categorization is not perfect. Um, but mine would be a um, lyric coloratura soprano. So I'm the highest voice, you could probably tell. <laughs> um, and I do a lot of rapid notes really quickly. Um, so I'm specializing in that and making sure everything is put together. And then the next thing you do is go out and audition for uh, competitions, for more young artist programs, uh, for opera houses even. Um, so it's kind of a crapshoot. You know, you just have to make sure that all your ducks are in a row or in your basket or whatever the phrase is <laughs> um, before you go out there um, so that you're the best you can be mm-hmm. when you start taking risks. And you mentioned that opera is still like a very like white space. Yes. So when you yeah. audition, like I have some musician friends who do blind auditions. Huh. Um, like are opera auditions blind? Like no. they can just, you walk in and they see you, huh? Yeah. So, because opera is, is musical theater. It's a area of musical theater they want to know what you look like they need to know how they can cast you mm-hmm. in terms of how you look and so yes there <laughs> it is a very white genre um historically and also in terms of i think the people who have participated in it now um largely the people who have access to it are white because it costs a lot of money it requires being with the right people at the right time like certain kinds of networking um and with that you know, comes this sort of, you know, system of oppression bleeds into that as it does into everything else in the world. Um, so yeah, it's harder if you're a woman, it's harder if you're of color, um, and it's definitely harder if you're not skinny. So, mm-hmm. you know, those are just the things that you're sort of told when you come into this and you have to work with what you have. I caught up with Ruby last week to ask some follow-up questions. One of which was if she knows if there are people in the opera community making any effort to change the system of oppression. She said there are, and it's happening in a grassroots sort of way, in smaller cities and smaller theaters, but the effort has yet to reach major opera houses like the Met. So I know we talked, we've talked like on our own time just a little bit about your experience with Vassar and being a minority and being mm-hmm. someone that was not as wealthy as the other students mm-hmm. there. So kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so Vassar ended up being a really formative experience for me in a lot of ways. And one of them was primarily in solidifying my identity as a person of color and as someone from a lower middle bracket in terms of income and opportunity. Um, I didn't really realize those things about myself until I went there and I was confronted with students who had limousines pick them up on the weekend, you know, whose parents had private jets, who would go vacationing in Paris for mm-hmm. fun, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> things that like I couldn't comprehend. Uh, so there, there is that. Um, and then there is also, of course, the fact that the campus was primarily a white campus and historically a white college. Um, the first woman 
first black woman, first black person to graduate from Vassar was named Anita Hemings. And she was white passing. Mm-hmm. And so she attended Vassar under the guise of a white person. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And Vassar claims her as their first African-American graduate, but in reality, they didn't know that she was of color. She did that intentionally? Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, That's kind of hilarious. They're just like, um, look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what time period that would be, but I, I can imagine it. You know, she yeah. would say... Yeah, no, I had to, like, pretend. Pretend, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so that's a very interesting story. Um, But I think it sort of speaks to the larger picture that it's a historically white institution and and a lot of those things, including um, the systems that have been built by alumni and faculty for generation after generation, Mm -hmm. are, you know, uh, definitely systems that favor white people and white students. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the most difficult things about attending Vassar was that they're the administration there was doing the best they could <laughs> in terms of having to reconcile this new diversity. Um, Vassar has need-blind admissions, which means that they take students based on merit alone. They have no information about your income until it comes time for financial aid. Hmm. Other schools will admit people taking into account whether or not they can pay full price. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's in their interest to take students who can pay full price um, because then that of course, gives them more tuition money to keep their school running. Vassar doesn't operate that way. So the majority of students there, well, not the majority, but a large number of students at Vassar are on some type of financial aid, much more than at schools of like that caliber in the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, so Vassar has this new pool of students who are more of color than they ever have been, poorer than they've ever had, have been, um, but the institution itself is still trying to catch up Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are instances of blatant racism occurring on campus, um, blatant inequality, really problematic things that come out of the faculty or the staff's mouth. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, and students will point this out and, and beg for something to happen in terms of reconciling that or um, remedying that situation. And the administration's response pretty routinely in my time there was to sort of like blanket... Um, give a blanket political statement that we should all get along. Mm. And you can understand that that's not effective. And it doesn't make people like me, people of color on their campus, feel particularly loved or welcome or wanted or even safe. Um, there were a group of black girls who had, who were living on, in, student, in student housing, like off campus. Um, and at one point, they, one of them was doing laundry or something and security was called because other students thought they weren't students. Mm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. So that's like an example of the kind of thing that goes on. And the administration doesn't say, hold on, let's take a second. That was racism. Let's talk about this. Let's mm-hmm. examine why this happened. You know, th- those kind of conversations uh, didn't happen with... Um, any kind of official support. Those conversations happened, but they happened because the students or a few of the faculty organized them. And the people who really needed to hear it weren't there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a self-selected audience when you organize something like that um, from an unofficial capacity. So yes, it was a little, <laughs> it was touch and go. You know, there were some moments where it was wonderful and there were moments where it was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I'm very, very thankful I had that experience, especially because it's opened up 
a whole network of opportunity that wouldn't have been open to me um, had I not gone to a school like Vassar. Mm-hmm. Um, you're entered into a network of alums who are all over the world doing all sorts of amazing things. Um, and they're very friendly and very encouraging towards other Vassar alum. Um, so that's been magical. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I found my present voice teacher through the Vassar alum network. Um, and she has been an absolute godsend and has completely revolutionized the way I think about singing. Um, and there's another alum who has been so generous in terms of her time and her advice and even her money in terms of supporting me and becoming an opera singer. Um, she paid full price for me to go to an opera program in Austria over the summer. Um, and again, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone to Vassar. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a tricky place to inhabit, feeling indebted to these people, but also leaving room for critique about mm-hmm. the way that the institution is run and who is and is not being served. I asked Ruby if she ever personally experienced racism in the opera world, most specifically when it came to getting a role. She said she didn't have that experience at Vassar, but there were some strange incidents in the opera programs overseas. I distinctly recall a lot of weird experiences in in Austria, in um, just that it's a very white country, obviously, mm-hmm. and I'm obviously not Austrian. <laughs> and Wait, um, no, <laughs> I'm sorry. Pause. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, it was strange because it would it would come sometimes from the people in the cities that we were traveling in, but also from the other singers. Um, I had a girl who loved my hair and she would just walk up and grab it and touch it and just play with it Mm -hmm. and I had if you understand curly hair I worked so hard (laughs) to arrange it and it's very humid where we were you know and so I was like trying to get the full fro effect right like I had a lot going on there I had worked so hard and this girl would just run her hands through my head you know and like I had to tell her I'm like girl this, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you can't do that to people's hair. It's like you're messing up all the engineering yeah, and the exactly. infrastructure like, that I incorporated. I worked on this. I worked on this. Um, so it's a little bit, yeah, it can be a little bit weird. And also there are things like, you know, there are specific roles in the opera repertoire for people of color. And there are very few and far between. Such as? Such as Lock May. She is a quote-unquote Indian princess. India Indian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... She, it's an opera written by a French composer, a white French composer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire story is pretty ridiculous, honestly. <laughs> um, it's ridiculous. Uh, pretty racist. And um, I have learned arias from that as well because I'm, you know, it's my voice type, but also I'm of color. I, mm-hmm. I look more Indian than, you know, the girl, the white girl from Wisconsin. So right. um, there's that. And then there's, of course, you know, Porgy and Bess, and I'm, I'm learning arias from that. And, like, I do wonder when it comes time to audition, um, am I going to get stuck? Am I going to get stuck in a certain place? Mm-hmm. Um, but it gets complicated, of course, because um, you don't really want to see, for example, in um, John Adams' opera, um, Nixon Goes to China, um, it's about... President Nixon's trip to China, and of course, the majority of the cast are Chinese characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the Met, though, for years, has been casting white people in the roles of Chinese people, mm-hmm. and been doing very questionable things with makeup mm-hmm. to make them look, quote unquote, 
Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do wonder too, it's like, you know, is it my responsibility to take roles that are for people who are black or Native American mm-hmm. um, because I could play them more truthfully than a white person could? Um, so I don't know, it gets complicated. I, f- I feel like oh, it's just like that. that is such an insult to the audience's imagination. You know, mm-hmm. like, I, I've never seen opera. I mm-hmm. hope that you'll be my first opera experience. <laughs> I'm very excited. Um, I mean, but it's it's like Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton, mm-hmm. you know? Like, why did it take him making Hamilton to, mm-hmm. to underscore that, like, people of any race can play any race? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. the audiences are smart enough to figure out, like... yeah. Yeah, like you, know, you don't need to put on. somebody in blackface. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like if you just keep referring to the person as Aaron Burr, I'm gonna get by about like the second time. That oh, that's Aaron, Aaron Burr. Burr. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I don't understand why they couldn't. I mean, excuse me, Matt. I have, <laughs> I have some yeah. some issues with you, but it's just like, why could you not like communicate that through costume, through mm-hmm. other things, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's an old genre and for a long time has been living in this bubble of antiquity that mm-hmm. um hasn't been touched by the social scene um of the day. Um and you'll hear a lot of particularly female opera singers talk about histories of sexual harassment and assault in the opera industry. Um and there was an entire day that my coach in Austria uh, dedicated to talking to her female students about. She said, you know, I've experienced harassment and assault in opera um, and have for a long time, and I just want you all to be prepared. Um, And it was really kind of chilling to hear her talk about the specific instances and also know that um, if it happens to you, your livelihood is at risk Mm -hmm. because you are relying on networking and reputation to build a career. And if you snub some conductor who wants you to give him a blowjob, what are your choices? What are your options? You Mm -hmm. know? Um, And that's terrifying to me. So I really, I don't know. I can't say whether whether that will happen to me, but I do know a number of women to whom it has. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's, at least I'm going in with my eyes open. Yeah, yeah, at the very least. In the opera industry, Ruby said that in terms of leadership roles, men probably outnumber women 10 to 1. I couldn't find any exact stats to back this up, but a Google search of the phrase men and women in opera led me to a New York Times piece from 2016 called Women Are Making Opera and It's Not Easy. And the piece talks about how in 2016, for the first time in a hundred years, the Met was performing an opera written by a woman. A hundred years. So that should give you an idea of the male to female ratio in opera leadership. And Ruby herself has only worked with one female conductor up until this point. It's rare to see a woman in a a role of power. Um, In terms of like the actual casts of the operas, it's about 50-50, I would say. Um, But in terms of the body of people to choose from, so many more women than there are men, um, which I think contributes to why it's so difficult and so competitive for women, because there are a hundred sopranos for every one baritone. 
Right. Yeah. And, you know, while you're talking about race and, and kind of uh, trying to to play roles, like tr- mm-hmm. grappling with, you know, do I play roles mm-hmm. written for someone of color or do I, you know, go out for the other roles? I mean, you're um, multiracial. Mm-hmm. So does that ever, like, confound people or confuse people? I mean, I know it's 2017, so <laughs> hopefully we've, like, dealt with this by now. But... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, have you ever encountered anything, someone saying something like, yes. oh, what happened? Yes. So the majority of my experiences with racism and just of race in this country have been centered around the fact that I'm multiracial. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just that I am of color, but that I am mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who still take issue with the idea that people have children with people from different backgrounds, different races and ethnicities. Yeah. Can I just blows my mind. Can I just say (laughs) 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 Yeah. They exist. Um they're kind of hiding in plain sight too. Um yeah, there have been some instances in which my family has definitely felt uncomfortable or unwelcome. Um I think my own experiences have been just one of um, a bizarre sense of like exclusion from all angles. I'm not white. White people have never been like, hey, welcome to the fam. Mm-hmm. There really isn't a white fam to be welcomed into anyway. <laughs> Come get some Uggs. Yeah. Like, <laughs> take all the flavor out of our food. <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, and then also, you know, from Native American community and from the black community, I think just having histories of such trauma and oppression when you look like the enemy or you are partly the enemy that you know automatically means discomfort mm-hmm. um so that i understand you know i don't um i don't feel you know that that's unjust necessarily mm-hmm. um it does make me sad <laughs> yeah um and i definitely experienced that at vassar um <clears throat> the communities there were very strictly defined and it felt like if you tried to enter a space um, that you hadn't been in before, even if you did belong there by rights of identity, uh, it felt very cold. Um, and I think it was just because so many people there were suffering mm-hmm. and with um, not feeling loved and welcomed on that campus that when they found community, they not only um, centered themselves in it, but they created walls and borders mm-hmm. and didn't let other people really in. Um, so I didn't really get very involved in the black community at Vassar. Um, I didn't feel like I was particularly welcome. And I, I did go to the multiracial biracial students Alliance for a while. Um, but even so the space was complicated because it was people of all different backgrounds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I can't relate as well to someone who's, you know, half Korean, half Chinese or something. Right. Um, that's not my experience. It's so far from my experience. Um, of course, I'm there to listen. <laughs> um, but it's not quite the same as having having um, a community where it was all people like you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a thing of real internal strife and struggle. Um, in this country, at least, I had a really bizarre and lovely experience going to South America mm-hmm. uh, where it was a complete non-issue people asked me about it and I told them and they were like oh that's lovely que linda like that was it <laughs> like that was it it was not an issue um and I have never felt so at peace 
about my race than I did when I was in South America. Um, and it made me wonder, like, what's wrong with this country? <laughs> Why is it that so many people ask me, you know, but what's your, what's your nationality? That's what I get a lot. What's your nationality? What's your culture? Where are you from? But what they really mean to ask about is my race. They mean to say, I noticed that you're not white. And then they imply that because I'm not white, I can't be an American. Um, and that feels very bizarre and alienating. Um, and makes me deeply, deeply sad. Because there is no other place on the planet that I belong. Yeah. <laughs> There's nowhere else that is my home. And my people have been here for longer than any white person. longer you know not that length matters it's just this is my home you know and it's so weird you know like you can almost imagine like you are a physical embodiment of of progress Mm -hmm. like of racial unity Mm -hmm. and so it's so strange that like as a country we still like if we can't fit you into a, a box mm-hmm. it's just sort of like my mind is boggled yeah like my yeah I definitely feel like um race and racism is a learned thing yeah uh, my own experience of it is that it really doesn't exist in any kind of tangible sense like it, it's a construct um and these lines that we've drawn are constructs <laughs> you know I think that there is absolutely truth in um different experiences based on race and based on culture and color specifically. Um, but again, like the, the idea, the, the whole concept of like there being different races is constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it has been bizarre, you know, uh, growing up, people would ask if my mom was my nanny, you know, cause she's clearly black and I'm clearly not black, fully black or whatever, you know? Um, so that was something I got a lot. You know, teachers would be like, are you sure you, you want to go home with her? And I'm like, that's my mom. <laughs> like, yes. yes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, she's where the food is. <laughs> it's been so frustrating for your mom. Just, yeah. Just like, you don't know how many hours of labor. Yeah. yeah. It's like, trust me, she's mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then of course, you know, like there wasn't even an option on, um, exams or, or forms you had to fill out in school mm-hmm. to pick more than one race. Or to say that you were multiracial. I didn't know <clears throat> there was a concept for being multiracial until well into high school, really. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since then, I had been picking one of the three every time. It, it was like on a rotating basis. You know, like every time <laughs> I got the form, I was like, ooh, what am I going to be today? You know? <laughs> Just confounding like the data scientists yeah, at the yeah. SAT or Just fucking with everything. <laughs> um, you're fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it it just wasn't something that like was an option, um, but I knew it was should should be because I was like none of these are right, none of these are reality, and if I say that I'm white, I'm completely discounting my mother. If I say I'm black, I'm discounting my grandmother and my dad. You know, it's like there's, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, so it's just kind of interesting how it it's <clears throat> entered the national discussion in really recent years. Like, I've seen that discussion come to the fore. Um, I remember there was a Cheerios commercial that came out in which there was a multiracial family. Yeah. And that was the first time I saw one on TV. And, and it happened not too long ago. It was not I want to say, like, mid-2000s. Yes. And there was an uproar, do you remember? Mm-hmm. People, like, lost their shit because this family was multiple colors. Yeah. Um, 
And I remember that whole thing coming out and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that anyone noticed that there are multiracial families. Like I was just still hung up on that. I was like, wow, someone cared enough or thought about this and was like, hey, what if we just had like a bunch of people who were family, who were different colors, you know? Um, I know. I remember the first time I saw that commercial, like I was watching it and then like toward the end, I was like, hey, that's a multiracial family. That's awesome. Yeah. And I just, like, that was, it took me until the very end of the commercial to, to be realize. like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. yeah. And then you realize, like, oh, that is standing out to me because you don't see you it don't on see TV. You don't see it. You don't see it on TV. Yeah. And that meant all the difference to me, honestly. Like, seeing that there were other people out there who had families that looked like, my, like mine. Um, and then, of course, it becomes a strange thing when, for example, I, when I grew up, um, and became a woman, it became a sort of fetish for people being oh, no. brownish, you know, mm-hmm. like being like a variation on white, like white, but like with a little spice or something. Right. You know, and it becomes a thing, you know, that white men are just, well, actually just men, mm-hmm. men are kind of gross about. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that was bizarre. And then there's also this thing where you see, um, white families and white people sort of like idealizing the whole mixed race family scenario like this is the future of america we're just one big melting pot let's all hold hands we've made it hurrah right like the fact that i exist does not erase the history of slavery no (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't exist racism in this country like yes i exist that means my parents loved each other it doesn't mean that there isn't still racism even in that relationship Mm-hmm. It happens, right. you know, we're all racist. Like, I, I worry about that, about people taking mixed race people and sort of thinking, ah, the future, how lovely, how perfect, let's all aim for that. It's another way of sort of tokenizing me, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it feels very uncomfortable, you know. It's, it's just like you're a fully realized person, and so are your mm-hmm. parents. And yeah. Like, yeah. Just making that leap in logic. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even logic, just like. Yeah. Critical thinking, I guess. Right, exactly. Yeah. Ruby is also a citizen of the Muscogee tribe. The Muscogee are Native Americans in Oklahoma who resettled along the creek after the Trail of Tears. So uh, when people say they're Creek or you've heard of Creek Indians, they mean the m- multiple tribes that were resettled along this creek in Oklahoma. It's a term that white people have used to sum us all up. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding is that we came from Georgia, Florida area. Um, I had also been told at some point that we were part Seminole, and I know the Seminoles come from Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I know I'm Muscogee. <laughs> um, yeah, so after Andrew Jackson committed genocide and moved, relocated several tribes in southeastern United States to Oklahoma most of whom died along the way. Um, we ended up in um, Okmulgee. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and there's still a reservation there. There's a Muscogee Creek Nation there. Um, and I don't know much about the culture or the language or the traditions. I've been to the reservation a few times. Um, but that's pretty much it. It's a matrilineal um, tribal membership. So I am a direct descendant uh, from our fully native ancestor. Her name was Julia Simon. Um, and I, th- I think she's my great-great-great-grandmother or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so all the women in my family have gotten their tribal citizenship. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, so we think it's 
we do it because it's important to keep the tribe populated, I think. Um, it's important to show up and let people know that Native Americans exist. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you know, the history is still there. Uh, we haven't forgotten. <laughs> um, I think all those things are important. Um, but, yeah, I do. I have a strong sense of um, sadness about it in the sense that uh, we lost our knowledge of the language and of the, the history. It's there. I could relearn it if I wanted to. Um, but then again, it's just my own feelings of um, not being enough and mm-hmm. being worried about intruding on something that isn't really mine. Um, my cousin, Chaco, uh, speaks the, the language fluently. He lived on mm-hmm. the reservation for a while. Um, and he's doing some really wonderful work in the Navajo Nation now. Uh, he's married to a woman who is Navajo, and they've got three, four kids, I think. Um, so anyway, it's there, and it's sort of being revived in, in this generation of my family. Um, but I still I feel like there's a lot of learned shame about it. A mm-hmm. lot of um, just shame and like not knowing the culture or the traditions, but knowing that like it's not your fault either. Yeah. <laughs> that it was beaten out of you mm-hmm. um, by white missionaries. So you can't really take responsibility for it. But, yeah, who knows what that'll be in the future for me. I think if I have kids, when I have kids, um, it'll be really important that I pass that along to them and that they know mm-hmm. um, that history. Um, so, like, and again, this is another thing that we've, like, talked about on our own time, but what mm-hmm. is the, like, goal for you, opera-wise? Opera-wise? Life-wise. Life-wise. Mm-hmm. So, not gonna lie, I may, I'm a big fan of lists so I make like to-do lists in terms of my life so when I was in my senior year of college I was like panicking as one does Mm -hmm. I was like who am I what am I doing have I studied the right thing I'm Mm -hmm. not gonna have any money for the rest of my life those normal thoughts been there yeah um yesterday (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking like this is the past (laughs) (laughs) um so I made a list of things I wanted to do before I died things I wanted to do before I was 30 and then things I wanted to do uh as my first like foray into the world and mm-hmm. as a young adult um and I recently revisited the one I was looking at um for my young adulthood and found that I had done actually a lot of them that's awesome which is great um I think the only reason I was able to is because I took the time to go home recollect uh after my college experience uh, see a therapist for a long time. Um, well, for not a long time, a couple months. Um, her name was Karen. She's lovely. Uh, <laughs> um, and the therapist, Karen. Right? Yeah. Um, but it was a really good move, I think. Just, like, nothing was particularly wrong. I wasn't, you know, depressed or feeling bad. Um, I just wanted to be proactive about my mental health and, and knowing what was going on. So I saw her, and, like, we dove into the depths of my psyche, and now I'm, like, there are no mysteries. Mm-hmm. I, I understand what's going on in my little head. You know, I know why I think the things I think, which is really comforting. And you realize at the, the end of the day, you're in control, you know, and that um, there's nothing really to fear, you know. Um, so now that I've done that, I can look at this list and be like, yeah, I do want to do that. And like, I just go out and do it, you know. So it feels really good to not be afraid anymore and mm-hmm. to know myself well enough. Um, so some of the things I wanted to do, I wanted to learn another language and I'm 
strongly conversational in German now. I've been studying it for <laughs> a year and a half, maybe two, um, which is awesome. And it's the kind of thing that doesn't ever really leave you, you know, once you sort of like reach a certain level of proficiency, you're like, okay. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and now I feel like if I, you know, move to Germany to do some opera auditions, like I'd be set. I know exactly what I'm doing. So that's awesome. Um, I wanted to um, be seen by people, like either, like, I don't know, movie, people who cast movies or like a modeling agency or something. And today I went to a modeling agency. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I had sent them my pictures and they wanted me to come in. And so I went in and we just chatted and they took some Polaroids. So we'll see where that goes. But in any case, I've crossed off the list. I did the thing, you yeah. know, like mm-hmm. I put myself out there. Um, I've been working on a book. Um, I've always been creative writing my entire life. Um, and so I finally took one of my obsessive little weird ideas and decided, hey, I'm going to try and flesh this out and see if I can build something that resembles a novel. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I've been working on that. Um, yeah, and it's like a number of things on that list that I was, you know, thinking, oh, in the future, like, I hope I have the bravery to do this. And I realized no one's going to hand it to you. You just have to get up and go do it. And I have been, and that's been really freeing (laughs) yeah yeah so like in the long in the long scheme of things something I really really feel strongly about is the importance of empathy um and this was something my voice teacher made me define very clearly part of her whole curriculum is that you understand what you're in the opera business for why do you even sing why do you why do you bother (laughs) Mm -hmm. because it's a lot of work and a lot of time um you know you have to know that you're doing it for the right reasons I'm in in it because I want to encourage empathy in everyone. I want people to take the time to sit down and listen to another person's story, another person's narrative, and really try and understand what it feels like to be them. Because I feel like the majority of the issues we're seeing in the world today are from people entrenching themselves in their own ideologies and their own beliefs, and then too quickly turning people who disagree with them into something less than human. Um, and it makes that so much easier to call them names or to hurt them or to discount them. Um, and that's kind of where all this hurt comes from in my perspective. Um, so I think by singing, hopefully I'm helping people really experience emotions that aren't their own, but in a sort of vicarious way, um, and maybe illuminating their own life experiences Um, and then by writing, I want to be doing the same thing, you know, telling stories that I don't think are being told enough, um, voices that aren't being heard enough. Um, and then with like modeling and acting, I think those are things that have always been kind of interesting to me in terms of like the art of the fashion world and, and the female body. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think that there's so much power in being a woman and being femme. I think that's pure magic and I want to express that kind of power that you see in drag queens you know that celebration of femininity um and that artistry like I really want to participate in that somehow um so it all sort of comes together in like a larger philosophy of that that, that's that's what I value um and I hope I can bring into the world before I die (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome I think that's that's really important to try to um, kind of share the strength of femininity because so often mm-hmm. I feel like people think that 
being feminine means being weaker because you're Mm -hmm. not being masculine but Mm -hmm. it's just it's just different it doesn't mean that you're being weaker like there's strength in that too and that's a hard concept that people are trying to grasp right now Mm -hmm. like when people say oh you know he's just being a girl or he's just you know it's man up yeah man up like it's it's implying that being feminine means being weaker and it's not it's not um so that's awesome yeah that's a that's definitely a great thing to aspire to yeah, I feel like some of the strongest people I know are, are femmes, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Actually, the strongest people I know are femmes. <laughs> Period. <laughs> End of sentence. <laughs> um, and then I guess just kind of like a final question, but what did, to you, what does it mean to be a chingona? Ooh. <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel like it is... I feel like it's about, like I said earlier, really taking the time to listen to yourself, love yourself, respect yourself, and know that um, you're in charge, you know, that you get to make decisions about your life. Um, And I see that exhibited in my friends and women around me and in femmes all over the place who are just walking around looking fabulous for no fucking reason <laughs> i love it <laughs> just seeing seeing femmes just like put on that lip shade and as you said go to target because why not you because know why the fuck not, why the fuck not? <laughs> you know just like i don't know knowing that there are no wrong answers about you know your life and the way you express yourself and the way you look and the things you do um yeah just having that inner strength and encouraging it in other people. Just a quick update on Ruby's modeling career. Since this interview, Ruby has signed a modeling contract with Donna Baldwin Agency, which is based in Denver, but the agency has worked with models all over the world. And Ruby's really loving it. I'm having a great time. Um, I've only done a few things so far, but um, yeah, I'm really enjoying just this extra part of my life to like explore Mm -hmm. um I've always been interested in fashion I've always been interested in um, modeling but I finally got to a point in my life where um I felt like I could take the risk without risking my self-worth or um getting caught up in some negative image of myself Mm -hmm. Um, so it's been really fun so far so is it like high fashion is it commercial is there runway involved um so far runway um (laughs) And I did one photo shoot with um, Kevin Alexander, who's uh, locally based, but has worked internationally, wonderful photographer, um, just to put together my portfolio. Mm. Um, So very meager beginnings so Mm -hmm. far, Um, but I've been really lucky in that I've been surrounded by really awesome people with incredible talent and connections, so. And so, like, I know a few weeks back there was, like, you had to choose between, like, doing a modeling gig or doing an opera gig, mm-hmm. and you ended up choosing modeling. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Is there one that takes priority now more than the other? Right now, in my mind, it's kind of a case-by-case scenario. Um, the audition I was going to do was for something that has ongoing auditions, so I wasn't super worried about missing it. Mm. Um, the modeling gig the modeling thing is it's there's more of a time stamp on that you know right like I've only got so long to be a model (laughs) before I become too old to be considered pretty which is fucked up in its own way but Mm -hmm. um that's kind of where I'm thinking that's gonna that's why I'm thinking that'll take precedent okay 
You can find Ruby and her adventures in modeling on Instagram. She's at Ruby Lee Pierce. That's R-U-B-Y-L-E-I-G-H-P-I-E-R-C-E. We will also link the New York Times article, Women Are Making Opera and It's Not Easy, in the description, along with the music from today's episode. The Chinguana theme was created and performed by Raul Garza. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Chinguana Podcast. Please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe and listen on SoundCloud and Google Play. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Bye.